0: Good morning, Church. Good morning, You know, um, we're going to continue our our verse by verse teaching through this powerful book of of First Timothy, and today I guess we'll be dealing with First Timothy chapter one verses eighteen through twenty. Now, I was telling someone yesterday, I know the very next section we're dealing with, we're talking about the men, and the section after that we're talking about the women. And if I skip this section today talking about the minister, some of you would catch on to that real quick. So today, this one's, I'm going to have to take my beating today, Um, but this is talking about the minister here. Now, um, if you'll remember, last week we ended up our teaching um, at the end of verse 17, where Paul had just shared his own personal story about this incredible encounter with God's mercy and with God's grace, you know, and he's just in awe. He's just in wonder, you know, at how God would have appointed him, the chief amongst all sinners, how God would have appointed him to Christ's service. He really didn't kind of understand that. That was just, he was beside himself with that, you know, and he just, because of it, he just explodes into praise in verse 17, saying this, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now that's where we ended up last week. He was just exploding in this song of praise here after realizing what, what God had asked him to do. Well, we're going to start off in, in verse 18 and we'll go through 20 and I'll read that. It says, this charge entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies, Previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Well, let's start off right at the very beginning of verse 18 here with the pastor's charge or the minister's charge here. Paul says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, or my child. Um, the word charge here is 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 the Greek word paragellon, um, which means a military charge or a command here. And this, basically, this charge, it points us back to the commandment given in verse 3, we had studied earlier, See where it says, charge them not to teach any different doctrine. Now, Paul uses this word. He uses it several times over and over and over again, because I think he wants us to understand in crystal clear terms what the task of every minister should be. Um, he, he does not want us to miss this point. In addition to these three times here in chapter 1, you can see it again in chapter 4 and verse 11, chapter 5 and verse 7, and chapter 6 and verse 13. This is a military term. In in the ancient world, um, it refers to a command that is to be passed down the line. That's what this is talking about here. So what is the charge? Now, I think there's really a couple of commands here, and Paul gives to Timothy, but we really got to pay attention to the um, to the text here. You know, the first commandment, going back up to verse 3, remain at Ephesus. You know, now, when you read that, I kind of wonder if Timothy had been tempted to leave at some time. You know, I wonder maybe had he gotten tired of people ridiculing him because of his age, maybe because he was so young, or maybe he was just exhausted, you know, of having, you know, one confrontation after another as he continues to preach the gospel. I know that certainly that's something that will wear a minister down. And oftentimes they'll start looking to move along there, especially if they don't have any help. Well, the second command is this, urge them not to teach different doctrines. So the charge that Paul has for Timothy is to stay put and guard the gospel. That is the big charge. Stay put and guard the gospel. You know, Paul knows that as generations pass, there's leakage in vision. People kind of lose their vision and they start straying. He knows that if leaders of the church are not adequately trained, you know, and if incorrect teaching, you know, is not dealt with directly and immediately, the unity of the church can be threatened. And oftentimes it really is. So as a pastor, our task is to guard everything that conforms to sound doctrine. That's what we're supposed to do. Now, I've known pastors ministers that have not done this, and it was a real mess, the the mess that they left there. You know, they're so concerned with pleasing people that they lose sight of the gospel, of what they're supposed to be teaching. Well, in our age of, of the pressing cultural questions you know, it's caused many to trade in the good news of Jesus for different doctrines, you know, that create controversy instead of focusing on Jesus Christ. And that's when a church ends up in a mess, you see. Now, this is the charge for every pastor. Stay alert and confront a teaching that's contrary to the will of God. Confront the teaching that causes division. Next, we have the pastor's commission here, moving moving right along in the same verse here. Paul, he doesn't say, I charge you with this. He says, I entrust you with this, Timothy, my child. So not only do we have orders here, but we also have a commission, which we've been entrusted um, with. Now, a commission is a little bit different from a charge. A charge is a formal military order. A commission is more like a common mission. You know, he's trusting Timothy to carry on the work that Paul himself was doing there. Um, so Paul's trust in Timothy was based upon Timothy's character. For one thing, I know in Acts the 16th chapter and verse 2, it says, All the brothers in Lystra, you know, spoke well of him. You know, it's also based upon his relationship. You know, Paul calls Timothy my child or my son. You know, this is a tender designation here. Paul's instructions to Timothy, they're also based on Timothy's call, maybe his ordination, his friendship, his companionship, and the intimate understanding of the apostles' teaching that he had in his heart. I mean, Timothy was a good, strong soldier. He was a good man. And to call him son or child, that was affirmed to Timothy that he had faithfully carried on Paul's teaching here. So it is Timothy that Paul gave his commission to. Now, commission is not something just given to just anyone. You know, if you're in the military, you understand that kind of term. You know, Paul, he did not leverage his apostolic authority here just to put anyone in charge of the church at Ephesus. He didn't do that. The church at Ephesus was special to Paul. So he chose Timothy, and in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, um, Paul will tell Timothy to take what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul's instructions are faithfully preach the faith that I've handed to you. That was one of them. Reproduce my preaching of the gospel And then he says, carefully choose other men who can also be entrusted um, to preach the the true gospel as well. That was the charge given to him. Now, you can see that this kind of resonates with Paul. You can see this was something on his heart and his mind because to the Thessalonian church, uh, to the Thessalonian Christians there, Paul reminds them in First Thessalonians chapter two and verse four, he says, "Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God, who tests our hearts. You see, temptation is a it's great in our time. The times that we live in temptation is is, is around us everywhere. You know, it's a temptation to turn away from the good news of Jesus and turn to all kinds of new um, legalism here. And temptation is great to take our eyes off the ball. And Satan is good at those kind of temptations. If he can pull our eyes away from the main thing here, he will do it every time. Remember the, the game you used to play when you, we were children? Maybe you were in a line or maybe you were in a circle, you know, where... The first person whispers a message into someone's ear, and then they have to whisper that message into the next person's ear. And by the time it got to the end, the message was always changed to something completely different. But there was always this one kid in the circle, you know, who would change it on purpose. You remember that kid? (laughs) Didn't you want to just box his ears when he did that? Because you were trying to get the same message from one end to the other. Well, listen, there's a core message with which we have been commissioned, do not change it, period. Do not change it. Um, Paul says, I give you this charge in accordance with the prophecies um, previously made about you. So number three, we're still in verse 18 here. Number three is the pastor's confirmation. You know, what are the prophecies previously made about you, to which Paul refers to in the second half of this verse. Well, it's really not clear in the scripture here, you know, to what he was referring to there. But something that might give us to shed some light on this is later in chapter four, we hear of Timothy's ordination here. Now, an ordination, you know, it's a solemn ceremony by which a person is set aside for Christian service. You know, they're put into place that way. In 1, Corinthians, or 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 4, Timothy, he got, you know, he got a gift that consisted of a prophetic message here, spoken over him and a group of elders laying hands on him there. Now, I do believe that at some point in every Christian leader's life, there's a moment where your calling is confirmed by other people in some way, shape, fashion, or form. You know, maybe God's called, um, maybe God sent people in your life to offer prophetic words over you. Um, You know, maybe he's even opened doors of opportunity for you as a confirmation of your call, the call on your life. But, you know, you've just been ignoring it. And folks, we need to step up to that. You know, stop ignoring God's call. Pay attention to the words of affirmation that God's given you. Listen, if God's speaking to you, pay attention. If you're reading something in the scriptures and you know it's speaking directly to you, pay attention. It means something here. So what we've learned so far in this uh, passage of scripture is every pastor has a, you know, has a charge, you know, has a commission, has a confirmation. And they also have a campaign, you know. Number four, every pastor has a campaign, you know. My charge for you, Timothy, my son, is that by these prophecies you may fight the good fight. Or the English Standard Version, one we're using that I printed in your your outline there, says, wage the good warfare here. Now, this is thoroughly a military word, but it's not a fight in terms of just one battle. That's not the gist of, of this word here. This is an ongoing struggle. Um, or a military campaign, or an expedition. You know, it's an ongoing, long-term struggle. And Timothy and every pastor must fight. Every one of us. If you wear this name, pastor, or, um, you know, in some case, elders, you know, they fit the same idea, or minister, you know, if you, if you wear this, you must fight the good fight you have a responsibility before God to stand up for the truth, regardless of what our society says. Warren Wiersbe, he says this, he says, the Christian life is not a playground, but it's a battleground. He said, and spiritual gifts are not toys, but tools and weapons we fight with. I thought that was really good. And Timothy our poor Timothy, you know, his struggle is threefold: Number one was to teach sound doctrine, number two was to preach the glorious gospel, and number three was defend the faith. These three things pastors must do. We are charged with that, and these three things, every Christian must do: teach sound doctrine, preach the gospel, and defend the faith. Folks, we are charged. With that. As we go further into this letter, Paul's going to tell us why these things are such a fight. So you got to wonder, you know, why? Why does everyone not want sound doctrine? Why do they not want to hear it? Well, in Second Timothy chapter 4 and verses 3 and 4, Paul warns Timothy that a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having engineers, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they'll turn away from Um, listening to the truth. So what we have here in today's time is emotions and passions and desires become the driver of doctrine, and it doesn't necessarily need to be that way. You know, today, we are surrounded by such a vast access to teachers, some good, some bad, YouTube channels and podcasts and churches and sermons and Bible studies and writings and Tweets and Instagram influencers, or you know, this list could go on and on and on and on and on. Um, And in this age, you can find any kind of teacher you want. I mean, you can find it if you look hard enough. If you want someone to teach you that homosexuality is not only not a sin, but among many of the desirable contexts in which um, godly loving relationships can happen, You can find it, and unfortunately, you can find some preachers that'll tell you that. Folks, beware. You know, we have a commission. We have a charge. You know, here are the pastor's weapons here. Hold to the faith. Don't let go of your trust in your heavenly Father. Amen. That's it. You know, a very popular word today, the more reading I do, this word keeps popping up now in, in articles and different things that I read, but a popular word is deconstruction. Have you heard that? Yes. Some of you probably has. And it seems like every couple of weeks here, I hear about another Christian that has deconstructed their faith, and they're publicly admitting that they're no longer Christian. Now, that's pretty sad. You know, and I... I just, I don't know what to say about that other than that, that's just sad. And almost every other day, um, I hear of a preacher or a pastor who has lost the gospel in the weeds of debating the social justice issues, or maybe they've just abandoned any sort of belief in biblical authority at all to to embrace a message that conforms to the modern sexual ethics. You know, when there's a, I don't even believe it's a majority. I think it's a small minority that's doing all the hollering about some of this homosexual junk, but they're just louder than we are, and people think they need to bend to that because they think that is a majority, but it is not. Um, I forget which radio program I heard it on, um, but it was yesterday that I heard it, that the question was asked about uh, genders, how many do you think they are, and 81% said two. What does that tell you? It tells you this other bunch is just very loud, you know, and maybe we're not standing standing up here. Um, for pastors, and as far as that goes, for Christians, the call is to hold on to the truth. Hold on to it. Folks, we're going to be judged by the truth, not the world. We're going to be judged by that truth. That's called the Bible here. Now, that doesn't mean that all deconstruction is bad. You know, this does not mean that, you know, uh, what we believe about God um, does not change over the years. Matter of fact, I kind of hope it does because the more we study the Bible and we get to know God, the more our beliefs evolve, the stronger we get. But one of the things we need to remember, according to Ephesians, the second chapter and verse 8, is that faith is a gift from God. In a book called After Doubt, and I think you pronounce the author's name, A.J. Swobia. Um, I won't hold to that, and don't hold me to that, but I think that's the way you pronounce his name. Here's what he writes. He said, deconstruction is a double-edged sword. It can edify our faith by helping us critically rethink wrong beliefs, but it can also go too far and bring our faith to nothing. Any belief we uncritically received at some point that remains host- hostile or opposed to biblical message of Jesus Christ needs to be deconstructed. But the minute deconstructed undermines the gospel, our faith, or the Bible, we deconstructed too much. There's a world of difference between deconstructing wrong beliefs and deconstructing the faith just as there's a difference between remodeling a room in our home and tearing down the house. Distinguishing between the two is essential. One is intellectual repentance and the other faith abandonment. In fact, a true and living faith will require us to undertake some sort of deconstruction of our beliefs. But folks, when it gets to where it contradicts what the scripture says, we've gone too far. Amen. Now, to wage the good warfare, you know, that means to hold on to the faith and stay committed to surrendering our beliefs to sound doctrine that conforms, that conforms to the gospel. That's one of the things we need to do. So how do we hold on to our faith? Number one is we spend time with God. And number two is, and I'm talking about not just reading the Bible, but spend time with him in prayer. You know, find your prayer closet or your war room and spend some time with God in prayer. Um the way that trust grows in any relationship is through time investment and consistency. You know that as well as I do. And a trusting relationship with God is your greatest weapon against the enemy in this spiritual battle. And folks, we are in a spiritual battle. The things that we see that's going on in this world and with politics, it all comes down, this is a spiritual battle, big time. The next weapon is right there in verse 19, but this is a big one right here. This is one that every minister probably struggles with from time to time, and that's the pastor's conscience. The pastor's conscience. Paul says, keep a good conscience. You know, right teaching and right doctrine, it's not enough. You know, and Paul, he will not remove right teaching from right living. He won't remove the two. You know, if Timothy is going to hold on to the faith, and if he's going to stay in the fight, his conscience has to be clean. In Paul's letters, he urges or he uses um, this often. You see it pop up all the time. You know, he used it in verse five. Remember when he said, you know, the purpose of these commands is love, a pure heart and a good conscience. We've already talked about that. He repeats it right here again. And then in chapter three and verse nine, he says, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. And then in chapter four and verse two, um, he says, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, why all the talk about the conscience here? You know, why is it coming up? Why does Paul mention it so many times? Well, this is a Latin word, um, conscienta. I think that's the way you pronounce it. But talking about con science, science. Science is knowledge. Con means with or next to. So this means with knowledge or you know, to know with, and Paul uses this word right here as the inward judge that bears witness to our actions. You got that? Paul uses this as the inward judge that bears witness to our actions. Romans, the second chapter, verse 15, says this, they, meaning the Gentiles, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting faults accuse them. You know, your conscience, when you stop to think about it, is really a moral organ here. And your conscience is conditioned and it's developed by outside sources. Remember when we were kids, our consciences were formed by our parents, our people that loved us or cared for us or it was close to us. You know, a healthy conscience receives instruction from the Word of God you see and when it's violated our conscience nags you and it pierces you and it motivates you to turn away from the behavior some bad behavior and do what's right you ever been in a place where your conscience just eating you up you know because you know you were doing something wrong makes you feel miserable does not it good you're supposed to you know i mean that's for our benefit you know if it didn't we'd be in trouble you see um, when you do not do what is right, your conscience lets you know and you feel ashamed. And then after you feel ashamed, then you feel regret. That's how, that's how it works. And if you ignore your conscience, it gets harder and it gets harder and it gets harder and it no longer motivates you or directs you or guides you. You do not want to get to that point, folks. You know, the conscience, it talks to us about our behavior. You know, the work of the conscience is much like the work of the Holy Spirit in that when it's healthy, it exposes our sin. And thank goodness that God give us a conscience and the Holy Spirit to help with that. You know, at some point in our lives, oftentimes people, they get to the place where, you know, you're not watching over your conscience and you're letting it be or you're not letting it be informed by God's word. In other words, you're not taking care of your conscience. And you start to say things like this. You know, I'm tired of feeling guilty about this. I'm tired of feeling guilty about this. So I'm going to just do whatever I feel like. You know, the conscience, it becomes hard, and you'll um, find yourself saying things like, oh, I don't know. I don't care anyway. You know, you get to that point. Folks, when you get to that point, you're in trouble. A healthy conscience ignored becomes a hard conscience. And a hard conscience ignored becomes what the Bible calls a seared conscience in the fourth chapter, you know, of 1 Timothy. You know, has anybody ever gotten a real bad burn on you? You know how, how that happens? And the sensation really never comes back, you know, to the place that you got burned? The conscience is like that. The conscience no longer motivates you when your conscience is seared you know, it doesn't work like it's supposed to. Now, God does use the conscience, you know, even if you don't know anything at all about the Bible, God does use the conscience. In Romans, the second chapter, verse 14, says, when the Gentiles do what the law demands, they show that the law is written on their hearts, either accusing them or excusing them. You know, God uses it to get our attention when it comes to our sin. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in this world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely toward you. You know, when Paul talks about this, when he links this phrase together, faith and a good conscience, he's talking about right thinking. But when he says a good conscience, and that's by itself, Paul's talking about right living then. So if pastors and all Christians, for that matter, if we're going to fight the good fight of faith, we must watch over our conscience. We must take care of it. We must eliminate things that are in violation of our conscience. You know, many people, they're silencing the Holy Spirit in their life. And Paul, he writes in to the Thessalonians there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19, he says, do not quench the Spirit. Well, tell you something. In my life, the work of the Holy Spirit is this. It's that small hymn or that small voice that's inside of me that reminds me that what I am doing or what I'm thinking about doing is in violation of who God wants me to be. And folks, we don't ever want to quench that. We want the Holy Spirit to be active and alive. We want our conscience to be active and alive. And if we put in our conscience, if we train it to like the things that God has said and not the things the world has said, you know, it's another avenue by which we can be uh, steered to right things. When you don't listen to the Holy Spirit or to your conscience— When you quench God's spirit and that still small voice, it gets harder and harder and harder to hear. Folks, we don't want to ever get there. A good conscience and holding on to the faith, they're related. They go hand in hand because when it comes to reading the Bible, the conscience, it begs you to read it with integrity. You see it says, no, you cannot embrace that teaching because it's not in line with the Word of God. It tells you that. And it's a person with the the hard heart or the person with the seared conscience that has no problem whatsoever twisting the scripture to make it say what they want it to say. Why is it so important for the pastor to have a clear conscience? because it's impossible to maintain closeness with God when your conscience is violated. In Hebrews 10 and verse 22, it says this, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience. You know, that is how we draw near to God. You know, we continue to seek him for his grace and his mercy, but when you do not have a clear conscience, you hide from God and you hide from other people. It's kind of like Adam and Eve, you know, they're sewing fig leaves together and, you know, and they hid, you know, we're we're kind of like that. As pastors, you develop a double life where, you know, you're one person on the stage or behind the pulpit, you know, when you're teaching or you're preaching, but you're totally someone different off the stage. And you finally, you get to the point where it doesn't bother you anymore. Folks, I've seen ministers like that. I pray that I never get to that point. And as Christians, you know, pastors and you yourself can hold strong opinions about political and and cultural things. But in your own private life, you're not following Jesus. You know, when we do that, we discredit the faith. And let me tell you something. If you don't think people are watching you, you're crazy. Mm -hmm. People are watching you, you know they want to find something wrong with you so that they can justify their own inabilities. You see, um but we discredit the faith, we slander Jesus, and we live a double life, and we live in violation of our conscience, so we don't want to go there. So let me encourage you, hold on to the faith and a good conscience. Now, in verse nineteen and twenty, we want to continue. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, lastly here, we have the pastor's confrontations. You know, if you are having zero confrontations, you can rest assured that you're not fighting the good fight. Because if you're standing up for Jesus Christ, you're going to have confrontations. These two guys, they were a problem in the Ephesian church. Not only had they rejected the faith, but they had led people astray as well with false teaching. And in the second letter, Paul would write to Timothy. He kind of identifies the problem here in 2 Timothy 2, verses 16 through 18. It says, but avoid irreverent babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the faith, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. In other words, they're upsetting the faith of other people here. Now, Alexander. You know, though, that's a similar name, and there's many Alexanders, and it's probably the same Alexander mentioned in, in 2 Timothy 4, where he strongly opposed Paul's message. You see there. Now, we do know that these two men, um, what we do know about these two men is that they rejected a good conscience, and therefore, they shift-wrecked the faith. In practical terms, and I were to put it in everyday language so that I can understand it, that means they were living with unrepentant sin. That's what that means. You know, they were rejecting holiness. They were ignoring the warnings of their conscience. And because they were um, ignoring the warnings of their conscience, they rejected the faith, you know, turning aside the false teachings that were just contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you something. This is not just limited to the church here we're talking about. This happens every day, all around us in our lives today. Let me tell you some folks, bad morality often leads to bad theology because the conscience cannot handle the tension knowing that you're a hypocrite. You want to get a real battle going in your mind, that's it right there. So what people do to ease their, their mind is they invent a new theology or new ways of reading the Scripture to accommodate their behavior, you know, for what's culturally trendy. You know, they want to do that. So Paul handed them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme here. What in the world does that mean? Well, most commentators that you read, you look up, you know, they seem to think that Paul had to exercise some formal church discipline here and asked them to leave the Ephesian congregation. You know, in other words, he excommunicated them. Question, is there ever a time when someone should be asked to leave a church? Absolutely. Scripture gives us precedent for that. Seems like no one does it anymore, but we do have precedent for that. Now, I've personally never told someone that they had to leave a church, but there's been times that I have suggested when there was some folks that just could not get along with a good, solid eldership, I suggested that they go to one of our other churches. I have done that, you know, but in the same token, when they got there about a year later, guess what? The same problem again. So who was the problem here, you see? Now, this is really not unprecedented in the scripture, In Matthew 18 and verse 17, Jesus urged his disciples to confront a brother or sister if they were in the wrong or if they were living in sin. Jesus' command was this. He said, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to even listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or as a tax collector. And then there was a situation where um, with a sexually immoral man, you know, in the Corinthian church, who had an ancestral relationship with his mother. And Paul commands the church this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 2-5. through It says, "...let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present." With the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And then in the 16th chapter of Romans in verse 17, it says, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. It says, avoid them. You know, These passages and other passages are evidence that every pastor and every Christian, you know, if you are truly committed to guarding the gospel, there's times that you need to confront someone. You know, it's a central part of being called a pastor because it's a spiritual struggle, and oftentimes, you know, the greatest threats come from within, you see, now, I do want you to know this, that, then you know, the goal here for discipline on Hymenaeus and, and Alexander was so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. In other words, still, their heart was for restoration. In other words, this was given to them. This discipline, you know, was not done to them. It basically was done for them so that they could be restored. You know, the idea is for them to, you know, the punch to be so miserable You know, they would put them in a position where they'd go, what was I thinking? You know, I love this fellowship, and I miss this fellowship, and I miss his mercy, and I miss his community. You know, that's what it's supposed to be for. So it's something we do for a person, not to a person, you see. You know, it is possible to recover the ship as well as the cargo, but only if we're willing to confront only if we're willing to to hold each other accountable. That's why it's so important. If you don't have an accountability partner, get one. You know, get one to help you out with these things. So the pastor's role is to guide, but the pastor's role is also to guard. Closing this message, let me ask you some questions here. Is there anyone that you need to confront? Have you heard God's charge to you? Are you trustworthy with a message? Have you been ignoring God's call on your life to be activated in a local church ministry? Have other people spoken affirming words over your life, which you've done nothing about that you've just ignored? Are you fighting the good fight? Are you holding to the faith? How is your conscience as a Christian? Folks, things that we all need to understand, not just the minister here. Folks, let me close with this. If there was ever a time to fight the good fight, it's now. Let's pray. Father, we just give you thanks again for your word. Father, may each of us in this room be found guilty of fighting the good fight of holding to the truth and not turning away. Father, may we be found guilty of, of helping to build consciences that are pure. And Father, all these young ones that we got coming up, help us all take a part in teaching them right from wrong so that when they get older, it won't be nearly as hard to stay true to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.